While we're transitioning here, if you wanted to uh, turn to scripture reading this morning, it's going to be in two places, 2 Corinthians 11 and Galatians 1. Fortunately, they're not far apart, but you're welcome to just listen as well. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4, Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. I will be reading from the New Living Translation, so if it's slightly different than what you have in front of you, that will explain it. I fear somehow that you will be led away from your pure and simple devotion to Christ, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent. You seem to believe what everyone tells you, even if they preach about a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. This letter is from Paul, an apostle. I was not appointed by any group or by human authority. My call is from Jesus Christ himself and from God the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead. All the brothers and sisters here join me in sending greetings to the churches of Galatia. May grace and peace be yours from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for our sins, just as God our Father planned, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. That is why all glory belongs to God through all ages of eternity. Amen. I am shocked that some of you are turning away so soon from God who in his love and mercy called you to share the eternal life he gives through Christ. You are already following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who twist and change the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including myself, who preaches any other message than the one we told you about. Even if an angel comes from heaven and preaches any other message, let him be forever cursed. I will say it again, if anyone preaches any other gospel than the one you have welcomed, let God's curse fall upon that person. Let me read you another portion of scripture that goes along with those that were just read. It's in Matthew chapter 7. And it's one of the most dire warnings in all of Scripture. And every time I come across it, it makes me take a deep breath and thank the Lord that He's in the saving business and that I am His and that I have that assurance in my daily walk with the Lord. But he says here in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And then he says, Many, many. That's a lot. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Our Heavenly Father, as we have, Merlin has read the scripture from Galatians and Corinthians, and I read this from Matthew. We're once again reminded that there are many things in the Bible that we might have different opinions on and different takes. And we realize that there are many people throughout the world that worship in different ways. Some in stained glass cathedrals, some on a lawn, some with just one or two, some literally together with hundreds or thousands. So there are differences, but the one difference, Lord, that we have to be careful and you speak to us so clearly about is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us to, in these days when we are concentrating on what that gospel is, what it means, how we respond to it. Convict our hearts. Help us, Lord, to do what you told us in Scripture. Examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Thank you for that instruction and admonition. And so, Lord, help us this morning as we dive into the subject of this morning, your death for us. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. He warns us that, I mentioned that, it's 2 Corinthians 13, 5, if you want that reference. Uh, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. And at first glance, when we start talking about, well, the gospel, we all know the gospel. Uh, why are you going to preach on the gospel? I mentioned to you um, a video, a movie called uh, The American Gospel. And in that um, film, there's a pastor that is speaking and he is asked the question he's going to be a guest speaker at another church and he's asked the question what are you going to speak on and he says i think i'll speak on the gospel and the the leaders there said well yeah we're that's nice but i think that you'll find out that all the people here are saved they already know the gospel and he said well that could be true that, that could be true but he said, I never take for granted that that's true. I never take for granted that everybody that's in church or comes to hear a message or even is a regular in church, for that matter, is a Christian. So I'll teach on the gospel. But more than that, he said, that the gospel is, is from Genesis to Revelation. 
If I'm preaching in the Old Testament, I'm preaching on the gospel. And for some that um, are maybe not real familiar with that, um, that might be a new thought to you. You might say, well, that was the Old Testament. That was the law. That was sacrifices. That was a Jewish nation. Before that, it was um, Noah and, and Enoch and all those folks. Um, but it all points to the gospel. And if it was so well understood and well known in our Christian circles, then why would we have so many errors when it comes to understanding the gospel? We're going to take communion today. And um, let, let me give you a little hint on this little cup while I'm thinking about it, while you have it. You can be working on this while you're listening to me. You get bored of what I'm doing. You figure this thing out. See that little tab? Don't pull that great big tab first. If you do, you're into the juice. On top of that tab is a little cellophane tab. And you have to kind of monkey with it a little bit and get that tab to come up first. Later when we take communion, we're going to pull the little cellophane tag and get what is supposed to be a piece of bread. And if you were with us last time, or when we've taken this before, it's kind of unrecognizable <laughs> bread. But that's what's there. And then, then we will take the top and we will pull it off and we'll get down to the juice. Okay, communion, the sacrament of taking um, the blood of Christ and the bread of Christ. We aren't actually taking the blood and we aren't taking um, Christ's body. We're taking a piece of bread that somebody made and we're tasting this piece of grape juice that somebody put in a little thing. Now I bring that up because I don't know if you know on the news, but the Roman Catholic Church does not believe. They believe that the sacrament of taking the bread and taking the wine, which actually becomes, actually becomes the blood of Christ. And they teach, and you can go look this up, don't take my word for it, but they teach that they could withhold the sacrament from you. They could withhold you taking communion because of one thing or another. And they would be withholding salvation. And you look down through history, they used that against some pretty strong kings to get them to bend the way they wanted them to bend. I will withhold the sacrament, and they thought, you're withholding salvation. So that would tell us that somewhere along the line came in the air that man could do something that would add to what, cross did, what Christ did on the cross. Okay. Some believe that we talked about baptism. It's going to be up at, up at camp. Some would teach that 
you can trust Christ by faith. However, if you don't follow him in baptism, you're not saved. It is part of salvation. Some teach that. Some would teach that you can trust Christ as your Savior, but if you don't have a charismatic gift, like speaking in tongues or something, then you're not saved. Some would teach that. Some would teach that you can come to Christ in faith, but you have to keep the Sabbath or some other part of the law. In the letter in Galatians, which was just read, they said that you could be saved by faith and circumcision. So you would have to be circumcised to actually be saved. Those are things that are we see as being added to our salvation. And interesting enough, people that I know and have known for years will suddenly, I'll hear of them being in some church organization that teaches salvation by grace plus something else. So, examine ourselves Examine the scripture and see where we are. Last week, we started in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with verse 1 through 3. And there, Paul was telling us what the gospel is. Christ died for our sins according to the gospel. Last Sunday, we concentrated on the idea of who Christ is. Who is the Savior? The Lord, God of this universe. Is he just Jesus? Well, he is Jesus, the man, and Jesus the Son of Man, but he's Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Creator of everything. So I mentioned that when we need to be careful when we how we live our lives and invite people to live for Christ with us or to trust Christ with us, that we represent who that Jesus really is. Savior, Lord, King of Kings, Sovereign God, Creator of the universe, the Judge. So know who you're accepting this forgiveness of sins from. Okay? That was the emphasis last week. Um, Tonight, or this morning, turn to John chapter 19. And I want to concentrate on his death, but primarily on a phrase, his last words on earth. This has been a delight for me as I've studied this. Chapter uh, 19. 28, I'll get there. I'm not there yet. Let me read these, this, these verses to you. After this, Jesus, this is verse 28 of chapter 19, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, 
to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Sometime when you have a lot of time to study the scripture and read and study out words and things, do a little research on the hyssop. Why, why was that brought up? Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here's what Spurgeon says about this phrase, it is finished. Tetelestia. It's all one word in Greek. Here's what Spurgeon says. There is only one Greek word for this utterance of our Lord. Although to translate it into English, we have to use three words. And then he says, an ocean of meaning in a drop of language. An ocean of meaning in just a drop of language. I remember being in the hospital and my mom was dying of cancer and she was in his very last days and even hours. And she was still able to have a conversation. And so you're obviously close, you're next to the bed, you're trying to be a comfort or trying to, yeah, yeah, who knows what you're trying to do when your mom is gonna be ushered into eternity at any time. But what I remember about her last conversation was, is everything all right with you boys? Is everything all right with you boys? There's two of us, or was, my brother's gone to be with the Lord now, just two boys. And her concern and her dying breath was, you got everything all figured out. Are there any loose ends? Is it gonna be okay? worried about us. Probably with good reason, knowing her sons. But everything was all right, and everything turned out all right. But that's the heart of a mother. Now here, we want to bend over, get close, and listen to this. It is finished. And then I want to show you something about that statement that John doesn't give us. The Gospels give it to us. The other Gospels. Matthew records this exact time. And he says in Matthew 27.50, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Mark says in chapter 15:37 he uttered a loud cry. Now this is after the trial, after the beatings, after after being nailed on the cross. After ministering to the thief that puts his trust in him. 
after telling John, take care of my mother. He's taking care of all these things on the cross. And then he shouts at the end. This is right before the scripture says he gave up the ghost or he gave up his own life. By the way, it wasn't taken from him. He gave it up. He told us that ahead of time, told them ahead of time. I, I take up my life. I lay down my life. No man can take it from me. So what they thought they were doing, they thought they were killing Jesus. All they were doing was carrying out the plan of God that Jesus would die for our sins. And he would do it willingly himself. But he cries out, it is finished. It is a victory cry. It's not the last gasp of the Savior on the cross. Some have said he shouldn't have been able even to muster a cry or a, or a shout. But this is a shout that echoed across those fa the family members, across the Jewish leaders, across the disciples, across all of Jerusalem and clear around the world. It is finished. It is finished. Wow. He did it. He did it. Now, what was his purpose of coming? Well, his purpose was to seek and to save that which were lost. And I wrote down some scripture here. I'll read them to you. What was his purpose? John 1, 29. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 John 3.5, but you know that he appeared so that we might, that he might take away our sins. As I was studying this, I got to thinking about maybe a question that someone would ask. When did this saving, rescuing, um, restoring begin? Did it begin at conception when Mary was conceived? Did it begin in the manger when he became a baby? Did it begin in that temple when his Parents left him behind and he was speaking in, the, speaking in the temple and he came back. They came back and he said, I must be about my father's business. Is that when it began? Or did it begin after the first miracle? Well, it's interesting. I got to think about that. And I want you to do something with me. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. And we need to have this emblazoned in our mind. Because in 
less than a hundred English words in four verses of the Bible in Genesis, a book that many would say is not reliable, a fairy tale, or at best an allegory, but not factual, real, live, objective truth. In four verses in this chapter, less than a hundred English words, the blueprint for our salvation is laid out, and it will be carried out from Genesis to the cross. All of the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament is themed, spoken of in these verses. Let me read them to you. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Look over at verse 21 of the same chapter, chapter 3. Mark it. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. What do we know just from those verses? Well, we read before and after and we got the bigger picture, but just from those verses. We know that looking back, man exercised his free will and he disobeyed God. That's the predicament he finds himself in. What is he? He's ashamed and he's hiding from God. That fellowship that he had with God is gone. It's broken. So what does man do? Number one, he hides. And number two, just in case, he sews some fig leaves together and makes himself some garments for he and his wife, for each other. (laughs) And so what does God do? Who seeks out whom here? Well, it's not Adam and Eve looking for God. It's God looking for them. It's God looking for his sinful creatures, his disobedient creation. God goes after them. And then what does God do? Animals can't sin. Man can sin. Animal can't sin. But an innocent animal was killed and the skins were put on them for clothing. Now think of what it said he sheared a sheep and made clothes for them and put them on. 
No animal would have had to die. He's done out of wool. Or hair off the hairy monster or something. I don't. But he didn't. So what do we see? We see God going after sinful man. We see sinful man ashamed, hiding from God, and putting on his own clothes, covering up his own nakedness, covering up his own disobedience. We see God shedding innocent blood and making a covering that is right or righteous. That's what's played out in the, all of the Old Testament, all up until the cross. That's the whole story. And it comes as to us in all kinds of places and all kinds of ways. Comes to us in Adam and Eve, comes to us in Noah, Jonah, Abraham, Isaac. It comes to us in the Exodus from the Egypt. Comes to us in the law and sacrifices. It comes to us as King David. It comes to us in the temple. As you read through the Old Testament, it is all about the gospel. One writer has said that Christ in the Old Testament is patterned, predicted, and present. And that's interesting because when you read the Old Testament, what he means by pattern is there's pictures of Jesus. There's pictures of salvation. There's pictures of sacrifice. There's pictures of Christ giving himself for our sins. There's also pictures of man's sin and how base and awful it is and how that he tries to figure out on his own all the time how to clothe himself in fig leaves. And it just doesn't work. It just always falls short. Those things are patterned. Also, the words of the Old Testament oftentimes actually predict the coming of the Messiah. So Christ is not only patterned, but he is predicted to come in the Old Testament. Isaiah, a lot of other places. He is also present. And that's a, that was an interesting thought for me when I begin to study this and think about it. He, our Lord and Savior, who went to the cross for us, was there in the burning bush. He was there in the writing of the law. He was there in the Passover, bringing them out of Egypt. He's there in the temple. He's there communicating. He's there making ways for man to trust him and then follow him in obedience. How are people saved in the Old Testament? The same way they're saved in the New Testament. By trusting in God. Laying their life on the line for God. What's it say about Abraham? Well, how was Abraham? Abraham faith. Because when God told him to get up and go, he did. And so his faith was an obedient faith. And we see in Hebrews 11, and he and a host of others, their salvation was in the fact that they trusted in Almighty God. That's seen all through Scripture. It's pretty exciting. So that was done all through the Old Testament. And then in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, I'll read you these verses. But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that He might so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Beautiful songs that we've just sung. So in the, in the fullness of time, now notice this. God sent his son. God sent his son. When you read through the Gospels and read through the New Testament and the teaching of Christ and, and his words and what he did and how he lived, He's always saying, I come to do the will of my Father. I do that because I, the Father showed me it. He is the mediator when he's here in the flesh. He's our mediator. He is carrying out the will of the Father. In John 8, 42, he says, I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this week, as I have thought about this cry from the cross, this victory cry of God, it is finished. Now that's, that same Greek word has been found in some um, old writings and things of, of Greek. And some would say that it says it's, it, it's on a bill and the bill is paid in full. It means the bill's canceled or paid in full. So you can take it to mean that and it certainly, certainly is true. But it's finished. It's finished. The thing that's stuck in my mind this week is that that is Christ's obedience clear through to the cross. And it's like he looks up at Christ, or looks up at God, and he looks to heaven, and he said, it is finished. I've done it, Father. I've carried out your will. Oh, how his human Humanness must wanted not to carry that out. Here's an interesting note. This all started in the Garden of Eden. You know where it really all culminated? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Now the cross is the outward display of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. What happened in the Garden of Gethsemane was, not my will but yours be done. Jesus Christ carried out what God the Father wanted to have happen because God the Father wants fellowship with us. And the way to get that fellowship is to take off men's fig leaves and put on the righteousness of Jesus. It's like Christ saying to God, you wanted them redeemed. You wanted them clothed in our righteousness. You wanted their sins removed so we could all be one. So you and me and me and you and them and us and we and them. It's finished. It's paid in full. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. 
Before we take communion, I want to take you to one more place this morning because something else was finished in these chapters in John. And it's a sad finish. It's a really, really sad finish. And I'd like you to, if you have your Bibles with you, if you don't, write it down. If you, if you can't write it down, remember it. But John chapter 10, and I, I think this is so important. John chapter 10. What we, what we find as we study the Gospel of John, that it moves through Jesus' public ministry up until a point, and then that public ministry ceases, and his ministry is to his disciples. Communion, washing of feet, encouraging them on what was going to happen, what was going to come, praying for them, telling them that the Holy Spirit would be there. It was going to be all right. They were not going to be left alone. Don't fear. I've got it taken care of. That's his, that's his ministry to individuals. But here in John chapter 10, verse 22, And here's an incident that at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place, John 10, 22, at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? I think King James says, how long will you cause us to doubt? Now, when you first read that, you can just read right over that and go, oh, hmm, good question. No, bad question. Jesus has just spent three years telling him who he is. In John 5, 25, he says, Father has given me authority to execute judgment. In 546, he says, the one who I am the one whom Moses has written. In John 641, he says, I am the living bread come down from heaven. In John 856, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And if that's not enough, if you don't believe my words, then believe what I've done. There should be no mistaking who I am. I have fulfilled all the prophecies. I am the Messiah of Isaiah 53. But if you can't believe all that, believe my miracles. Arthur Pink, who I've been reading his book, interesting, he has this quote about this passage in John 10. So it is today, instead of tracing the cause of unbelief to his own evil heart, the sinner blames God for the insufficiency of convincing evidence. The sinner blames God for the insufficiency of convincing evidence. How long are you going to keep us in doubt? 
it wasn't the Lord that was keeping them in doubt. It was their own unbelieving heart. You might want to mark verse 40 that follows that conversation because here's what happens following that. And he, Jesus, went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. What's beyond the Jordan? What's on this side of Jordan? The Jewish nation. What's beyond the Jordan? I'm done with you. I'm done with you. I've done all I can. See, the lack of belief is not due to insufficient evidence. The lack of, knowledge of acknowledging God as creator is not due to insufficient evidence. It's stubborn, willful unbelief. But here's the warning. He turned from Israel, from presenting himself as their Messiah, and said, that's it. That's the last chance. I'm done. You rejected me. Oh my goodness, that ought to be make our breath short and our heart pound. If we've been contemplating the person of Jesus Christ and have been putting off trusting him as our Lord and our Savior. What would happen if that day would come in our lives that he said, I've done it all. I've showed you all I could. And you reject me. So friend, as we take communion this morning, that's a sobering thought. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to. And if you're not ready to, If you are ready to, seek us out. Come to me. Come to the elders. Somebody else. And say, you know what? It's time that I got right with Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for your word. And we pray as we take these symbols that we might once again be able to have a picture of your body that was broken for us. That we might have a picture of that blood that washes away all our sin in the sense that your death, you took on sin for us, became sin for us, and paid the eternal price and judgment for our sin. And offer that salvation to us freely.
but we have to step out and take it. And Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So take this little cup. As we have been instructed. And see if you can get that little cellophane top off of it. Not the big tab. The little teeny, hard to grip, stupid little tab. With the red writing on it. And when you pull it back, there will be a wafer. I will give you some time. This is just a symbol. And I think it is not necessarily, what do you want to call it, desecrating, to make fun of this little symbol the way we have to package it these days and the way we have to deal with it. But at the same time, don't lose sight of what this is, what it represents. It represents Christ's body broken for us. Lord, as we take this bread, thank you for becoming sin for us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your obedience to your Father. We understand now how desperately, magnificently, in love, God is with us just because he does. And he sent you down here to make a satisfaction for our sins. And you loved us so much that you carried that out and went to Calvary. We thank you for your broken body. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the bread. holding this little cup away from you and your wife or friends. Maybe it would be an appropriate symbol if you spilled it on yourself and were covered by the blood of Jesus because that's what it symbolizes. Thank you, Lord, for dying for us. Thank you for the new covenant, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the fact that Jews and Greeks and no matter who, black and white, red and purple, young and old, crippled and healthy, all can partake of you in one body. Thank you, Lord, for that new covenant. And we take this juice as a symbol of your saving blood in Jesus' name. Amen.